0: Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests This is Screen Therapy. More and more people in the mental health community are subscribing to a biopsychosocial model. It dispels the myth that people live with mental health conditions because of quote unquote broken brains. Bio is biological, such as genetic factors. Psycho is psychological, as in coping and interpersonal skills. The social of biopsychosocial refers to the environment around us, things like social status and how people are valued by society. Amanda Filippelli is a writer and editor. She has used her punk morals through her career in publishing, as well as counseling at-risk youth in her previous jobs. Amanda believes the lack of creative space for musicians, writers, and other artists has a lot to do with the prevalence of mental health issues in artistic people. Misdiagnosed with bipolar earlier in life, Amanda warns against letting a diagnosis define you and forming identity around it. Amanda's clinical depression, OCD, and anxiety, in addition to being a punk, made her an outcast as a youth. Like many of us, she met other punks and found the punk scene. It gave her a community and a purpose. She says punk was, and is, a guiding light.
1: My name's Amanda Filippelli. I am a writer, editor, and book coach in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My background with punk rock is I found it as a teenager, and it really helped me adjust in a difficult and awkward time in my life. During my career, I started out working in the field of mental health for about 10 years, working almost solely with adolescent survivors of trauma. And I found then that my love for music and for punk rock really helped me connect with those kids because it was a great way for me to express an outlet with them that they understood and vibed with too. So that really propelled a lot of my work in storytelling and in the arts. And so now as a much older adult working in the publishing industry, it's still a big part of my life. And I love to uh, give it credit for how it helped me heal.
0: You talked about going to a punk show when you're in, I think it was grade nine. We're talking about this before the podcast. How did you feel when you walked in the doors of that show? Do you remember what came up when you looked around?
1: Well, I was scared shitless, first of all, to go. (laughs) (laughs) Before that, I was just really lonely and really struggled growing up with major depressive disorder and OCD. And it kind of made me an outcast because I didn't know how to deal with it, how to express myself properly in front of other kids. And I didn't really have any treatment up until that point besides medication. And so I really just didn't know what I was walking into before I found Punk Rock or went to that show at all. I remember listening to a lot of alternative stations in the nineties started to become really huge. And so there was a lot of like heavier music that I found myself attracted to. And then ultimately kind of exploring the metal scene. But I think as a girl, none of that really felt super welcoming all the time. And then I really spent a lot of time listening to like Tori Amos and Fiona Apple uh, in my room, like by myself. And those spoke to me, but it wasn't a communal experience. It was burn candles and journal by yourself kind of thing. So when my friend offered to take me to this event, I was really nervous because I remember when we pulled up, there were like a lot of older kids there. Um, It just seemed like an older crowd and we were dressed to try and fit in. And it was loud. (laughs) I remember walking in and looking around and thinking, wow, a lot of these people look different than what I'm used to seeing at school. And in my like General circle every day, and nobody made fun of us. Nobody gave us a hard time. In fact, we ended up just like meeting a lot of people, and I met a group of friends that I stuck with for years after that. And I think I was really taken by the performance. So wild, you know. It was the first time you saw somebody kind of like really jump around and and participate in performance art and scream into a microphone and just really feel what they were doing. It was like a basement show. So they were right there with you. They were right in front of you. It just felt really inclusive. And man, I was super hooked after that.
0: It sounds like it almost changed your identity in some ways.
1: I think it helped me find it. The most important thing you can feel that you're not alone. And that the things that I felt, the things that I was going through, like other people were too. I just hadn't found them before that.
0: Was there open talk about things like depression? OCD, different mental health conditions within the scene, or was it one of those things that was more unspoken and almost known, but not talked about as much?
1: I'm not sure that there were open conversations about it, but I know that there were conversations in the music about it and kind of like in the aesthetic of punk, you know, when you're younger and you are just exploring like what that looks like and what you wear and why people wear certain things, I felt like. There was an understanding there because a lot of times, you know, a lot of the music was about feeling dejected or depressed or um, like this sense of dealing with like a sense of self loathing. But then there was also this dual message of community and friendship and kinship. When I was a young girl, I struggled a lot with self harm, which is really, really common and people are really scared to talk about it. When you're first introduced to things like, the most common generic kind of form of punk rock and like the Sex Pistols and things like that, the violence of it, while I think it was scary to a lot of parents, including mine, it reflected something that I understood as not, you know, didn't make me want to go out and hurt anybody. It made me feel like the feelings I had were normal. And I could understand that sense of rage in the music. I could understand that sense of anger and frustration with the system and society and even just like the hierarchy in my high school.
0: A lot of misconceptions about punk rock and how it's a negative outlet but it sounds like for you and a lot other folks it's more of a positive outlet.
1: Yeah and I think punk rock is about counterculture and I think that sometimes when you grow up with a condition, or whether it's a mental health condition or anything that makes you feel different than other people, you already are part of that counterculture. Like your just existence becomes counter to everything that's accepted, especially the popularity contest that it is being a kid. There's just this kind of thread in punk rock music and in the scene at the time that made me feel like I belong here.
0: You mentioned your work with mental health and youth how you're able to bring some of that into your work.
1: So, I've worked with like so many amazing kids who just have just had it really tough. And I recognized early on that so many of the things they were feeling, the frustrations, the rage, the sadness, the problems with self-image, all of those things and even symptoms that were like inherent with their diagnoses were things that I knew that components of the music could really help them express themselves. The more interesting part to this was I worked in residential treatment facilities. So those kids lived there. So they were really stuck in the system. And I would watch a lot of them cycle in and out, in and out. And not only were they cycling in the system, but they were part of a very broken system, one that didn't always serve their best interests. So they were kind of like getting beat up from all ends. I just remember like, one girl that was there for a long time struggled with addiction and self-harm and just generally tried to escape a lot. And she was kind of difficult to get through to. But I remember the first time I played the distillers for her and something in her like clicked.
0: Are you ready to be liberated? On this it's dream.
1: I and- songs like the young craze peeling and i'm reverent things that just made her understand that you're part of a bigger community of people who do understand you and it's okay for you to take this music and use it as an opportunity to lash out and express yourself instead of lashing out against yourself and it just changed something in her and eventually she was able to start going off grounds and doing field trips and things like that. And I remember in the car, like she would always want to put it on and just kind of like rock out in the car. And it was a great experience for both of us. It was something that we could bond over, but that she could heal through too. I really tried to incorporate music into a lot of our sessions and therapeutic goals for a lot of the kids and it opened them up. It was important for them.
0: Why did you leave that work?
1: I left there after a long time just because I hit against so much bureaucratic red tape. Was really hard to keep moving up in the organization because some of the changes that i wanted to make were changes they weren't interested in making it's not a well-funded system a lot of money goes to ceos and psychiatrists and not down into the kids needs my first business actually was a wraparound counseling service for at-risk youth and so i used to drive around the city for like 16 hours a day going to at-risk youth homes Um, and doing family counseling with them uh, without insurance at like low cost, just offering them affordable care. And so I did that for about two years. It kind of collapsed because the need was so great. I couldn't scale fast enough and insurance companies didn't want to work with me. But the thing that I took from that was the same thing that I've always taken from music is that so much of my work with those families had to do with storytelling and with creative arts So I've really just kind of channeled that into my career in the publishing world. And I still work with a lot of kids and do a lot of children's books and creative projects with teens.
0: You've had punk rock through your whole life as far as your career, the jobs you've done. How have you translated that into doing your writing and editing?
1: Part of it's been difficult because I think there's a real liberal core to who I am that wants to buck the system all the time. (laughs) True punk. (laughs) (laughs) As an adult, there's kind of a more reasonable edge to that, obviously. But I think that that's a good place to be because it helps me see where the evils of the industry lie and what's good to push against and what's good to conform to and that kind of constant conversation that we're always having in the punk world anyway. I think punk rock has become like a place for me. It's a place for me to visit nostalgia. It's a place for me to process emotions and different life events. And it's also a place for me to take learning. You know, there are so many bands that I go back and listen to that I find completely different meaning in now than I did 20 years ago. I think one of the best examples of those kinds of bands is Bad Religion. something really philosophical like that, that you listen to as a kid, and then you listen to it again as an adult, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> that has really helped be like a touch point for me when I'm trying to work through what are the best decisions for my business? You know, in my world, there's a lot of clash between creativity and commercialism. And that's really tough because as a writer, as an artist, and as a person who coaches artists, I spend way too much time telling myself and other people that we have to conform to be a little bit more commercial for the industry to accept us and pay us money. I've spent a lot of time trying to fight against that. And I think that those values were really instilled in me by punk rock.
0: And you do a lot of teaching as reading up on your website. This one that I really like is called the internal excavations. Which I thought it sounded like a death metal band <laughs> name.
1: That's a good idea. I should start a,
0: a metal band. <laughs> I can see the t-shirt.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So I just do a lot of talking about how storytelling and honest storytelling requires this deep internal excavation of yourself. If you want to represent any type of authenticity in your work that you have to explore all the things about yourself that you don't like or that you hide from, because art comes in truth and truth can only be found in uncomfortable places. It's the same place you grow from. It's the same place change happens. The idea of an internal excavation is just the idea that you are willing to sit with Traits about yourself that make you uncomfortable and explore them and understand why they exist, why they make you uncomfortable until maybe you can try and get to a non judgmental place about them and then write about them because the truth is, so many other people feel exactly the same way you do.
0: When did you first know that you wanted to be a writer?
1: Always, always. Something has always been very ingrained in my personality. I first went to school for psychology because. Growing up, everybody kept telling me that I could never be a writer. I couldn't be an artist. I couldn't be any of those things, which I think is another reason why I never pursued music, because everybody just tells you that you're going to be broke and it's never going to work out and you need some kind of fallback plan. So I went to school for something entirely different. And then it wasn't until then when I used that degree and started working with these kids and saw how much art could change their life and how much music could change their life and how storytelling could heal them. And I was like, no, wait a minute and went back to school twice for for writing and editing. And that's kind of how I got here now. I probably feel the way about writing that most musicians feel about the way they grew up, just constantly playing and, and creating music.
0: So I just got a dual diagnosis. Bipolar was my original one three years ago, and just about a month ago, ADHD. And I'm wondering, because you have three different challenges, major depressive disorder, OCD, and anxiety. And I'm wondering how you see the intersection of those things.
1: I think I have a little bit of a radical perspective on mental illness in in terms of creative people, including yourself, and that a lot of times I think that mental illness is less a diagnosis and more a reflection of the fact that society doesn't really create a lot of space for creative people. A lot of the behaviors and the things that our brains develop to adapt or reactive to a society that doesn't value what we have to offer. It can be really difficult to navigate and to exist inside a world where what you offer as skilled labor isn't valued in a lot of ways, you know, not just monetarily. I think mental illness is obviously a real thing. I think there are a lot of conditions that are biological. However, I think that a lot of creative people are just misunderstood A good example is that for many, many years, I was diagnosed with bipolar, and that's just what I thought that I had, and that was an incorrect diagnosis. And I spent a lot of time trying to mold the way that I live my life and the way that I seek out treatment and relief, what I might need as a person with bipolar disorder. And then when it came to the surface that that wasn't the case at all, it really took me back and made me rethink my personality, my identity, what I need, what I don't need. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that all of these things do function together. I know for me, like my compulsions and my depression are hand in hand. There's not these separate things happening in my body. It's a coordination between a lot of different things. And a lot of it makes up parts of myself that are trying to express themselves that might've been suppressed at some point, parts of myself that are overly expressive or under expressive, but I find that it's easiest to cope and to feel comfortable in myself and in the expression of myself when I'm creating things. But then the challenge becomes, when do you have time to create things? And how do you get paid to create things? And who values these things that you create? And so then that kind of comes full circle and sends me into this spiral about okay, but maybe I just have these disorders and they hold me back. And so I find myself in this kind of constant loop of trying to figure out if I'm doing something that is disruptive to my life, oh, it's just my OCD. But no, there's a, there's a deeper root issue to that besides the genetic component of it. I think it's um, a fruitless venture to try and kind of compartmentalize what each disorder you might be diagnosed with is causing your body to do. And more so about learning how to view yourself as a fully integrated person with those things, because it's okay to be fully integrated with those things. And then to acknowledge that, okay, if I'm a fully integrated person walking around with these traits to my personality, do I fit in? Is there space that's welcoming and inclusive for me? And if not, there's something wrong with that, not something wrong with you.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that I've come to the conclusion that I would like to see things be symptoms-based. So rather than being diagnosed with BPD or bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever mental health condition, that instead it would be, these are the symptoms because there's so much overlap. And I feel like it's way easier for me to deal with a symptom than it is to deal with this name of this thing that is very large scale and overwhelming for me.
1: Immediately once you get a diagnosis, if you start expressing a symptom, or even multiple symptoms of that diagnosis, there's an expectation that you're going to escalate to these other symptoms. And in your mind, you're waiting for those things to happen. And so if you never have any of those expectations placed in your mind in the first place, it's easier to cope with the symptoms that you are feeling, learn how to fully integrate them into yourself and be a more comfortable, happy person than to be waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because I feel that way a lot of time with a lot of kids that I've worked with. I've seen that happen a lot where like they'll live up to a diagnosis. You know, I've found a lot of times in treatment, especially with kids who are still searching for their identity in a crucial time where that's totally normal, that it's actually kind of better that they don't hear a diagnosis, that they don't know, because then they start forming this identity around this diagnosis. And I think that's probably the most dangerous thing that you can do. And I know that as an adult, I've had times where I've fallen into that trap myself. So I can see how easy it would be for a kid to do that. It's such a complicated, muddy thing, which is why people don't want to talk about it a lot. The other thing to just speak on the symptom-based idea that you bring up is that all of this happens on a spectrum. I mean, what is mental health? You know, if one out of four people statistically struggle with mental illness, like when do we change our definition of mental health then? What is full mental health? if it all functions on a spectrum and you have a symptom of something start to surface, there might be reasons for that. And it doesn't mean that you have some diagnosis. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It just means again, that it's a reaction to the environment that you're in and it's just your brain trying to do what your brain does and cope with whatever it is that you're dealing with, or maybe hadn't dealt with before or whatever that is for you. But We don't have a system that is able to recognize just symptomology and break that down, deal with it, have you come back to baseline and go about your way without a subsequent diagnosis.
0: A lot of times punks do these larger projects documenting scenes, and you're telling me about how you did something in grade 10 with a friend around documenting the Pittsburgh scene.
1: Yeah, for our end-of-year project in sociology, we had to pick like a culture, a subculture, to document and present. And so we did the punk culture in Pittsburgh. And I remember our teacher was cool, and he was really excited about it. He was super shocked when we proposed the idea. But then when it came time to present, it was a difficulty. <laughs> for one, we got into a lot of trouble coming into the school for having liberty spikes glued up we weren't allowed to sit in classrooms like that my friend tried to wear one of those bullet belts and so it was just a long morning of trying to explain to the principal what we were doing for this project and we were already kind of in hot water for all those things already but then the presentation you know we just filmed every day for us and at that point we were spending a lot of time in this house it was like a community house in um a neighborhood here in Pittsburgh where all of these kids used to just hang out and live, especially kids who like didn't really come from great homes. And there was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of smoking, there was a lot of profanity. And I get that we were in 10th grade, but the thing was, we were having conversations about real stuff though, too. There was music in the background all the time. And we were really talking about our belief systems, even as kids, we were talking about not fitting in, we were talking about why that was and what we hated about school and society and parents. And at the time for us, those were such important conversations in our development. And I thought that they were deep conversations for 10th graders. But then a lot of the other filming was like shows, you know, which from the outside can look pretty chaotic and then just stupid stuff like kids pushing each other and shopping carts into walls. and (laughs) Classic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But we really wanted to give a full in-depth view of what a week looked like inside this culture and how, yes, it looked chaotic. Yes, it looked rebellious, but also like this was a family of kids who were always together, who, you know, we filmed a lot of people getting their feelings hurt and other people helping them. And We just wanted to show how diverse it was too and how many people came from different parts of our city to be in this one little space just to be with each other and just to support each other and that the music was the foundation of all of that. So we were so proud of it and we spent hours and hours editing this thing and putting the right music over it and arguing over whether like this song better represented what we were showing on screen and we spent so much time on it and then I remember just showing it in the classroom just falling silent and when it was over everybody just being like what did I just watch and just being so confused by it and we were ready to like field questions like okay what do you want to talk about and just nobody wanted to talk about it just nobody had anything to say just it just cemented us as weirdos the weirdos who they already thought we were we got a great grade like our teacher loved it he thought it was brave I think he said some kind of weird word like that about it <laughs> which was not the point but At least he was willing to see us and listen to us. But sometimes I think for some people that even when you do find where you fit in, that your presence is always just still difficult. That's how it felt.
0: Has that changed for you?
1: No. (laughs) I mean, as an adult, it's different because you build your own life around you and you fill it with people who you want around you. And, you know, you can do that now. You're not forced into situations like you are when you're young. But I do think even still though, you know, when I have to be in high level meetings with people like in my industry, or even just dealing with family members, or I do a lot of speaking engagements about storytelling. And a lot of times, some of the things I say are pretty counter to what other people who talk on those subjects say. So I do find myself in that position a lot, but it's difficult for me because it makes me very anxious. And so I'm constantly battling this argument in my head about whether or not I'm just, saying stupid things or if I'm saying important things or what's the difference at this point, you know, so I run through that, but I ultimately know that this is who I am. And I have found that part of myself bolstered by punk rock and the creative arts and those sorts of scenes. And I think that what I have to say, which is inspired by those places and those things and those people, and they're also saying similar things is important.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Oklahoma nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at screamtherapyhq.com. That's screamtherapyhq.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well.